are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their scarce stones, and cut down their Azariah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins, the money changers, and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. All right. Thank you, Santi, for reading. Well, I wish we had a way to do this, to swing around and catch each table and hear some of the responses to our table question this morning. Because my guess is probably we'd hear a lot of things from childhood that might come up and things that would also date us accordingly across the generations of this church family. So for me, I was a little kid in the 80s, and so no one is surprised to hear that one of my most prized possessions was a Cabbage Patch doll. Do they still make those, by the way? They out of commission. So 1983, the Cabbage Patch doll was the toy of the year at Christmas time. And my Cabbage Patch doll, he had brown hair, just like me, and he had a football outfit. But for me, what really took it over the top was when I got this gift from my grandma. She had made a new outfit for him, and it was a full blaze orange hunting suit. You might be a redneck if your Cabbage Patch doll wears blaze orange. (laughs) And I love that doll. But, now a different stage of life, you know what I love infinitely more? My kids. The difference between loving a doll and loving a child or grandchild can hardly even be compared, show up in the same sentence. I would even go as far as to say, I love my kids with a jealous love, meaning I'd fight for them, I'd die for them if I had to. And so we come today to this topic of the jealousy of God, and of all the attributes that we've been studying all summer long, all the ways that God is like, I think today this one might be the most surprising one on the list. In fact, I would guess that there's probably a good number of us who have never even heard of this before. God is jealous? And that's a good thing? The answer is yes and yes. But it's going to take some looking in the Bible to figure out what this means. And it's going to take some adjusting to our idea of jealousy. That's because jealousy in our context in our language, in English, is almost always negative, isn't it? A jealous boyfriend, 
a jealous rage? Or how about a jealous sibling who has to sit there and watch their brother or sister open up birthday presents and get all the attention? There's a Daniel Tiger episode that is based on that premise. If you don't know who Daniel Tiger is, he's like the modern-day Mr. Rogers, except he's an animated tiger, so it's kind of a stretch. But he does wear the red sweater and puts his shoes on. So another example of jealousy, when we think about some modern connotations or characters, Gaston in Beauty and the Beast, classic story of jealousy. And going even further back in time, how about Shakespeare? There's that line in Othello where he says that jealousy is a green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feed on. That's jealousy. So that's this dominant picture that we have in our minds, that jealousy is a negative attribute. We would readily acknowledge when it is people who are jealous, it's true. It's almost always ugly in most scenarios. That's the connotation. But the trick is, and Katie shared this so well with the kids, that definition doesn't work when we talk about God. So here's the definition that we're going to see emerge from Scripture today. The jealousy of God is his rightful desire to seek his own honor and to have the love of his people. Now I want you to note the distinction between jealousy and envy. Envy is the desire to gain something that isn't rightfully yours to begin with. Jealousy is a relational desire to maintain exclusive favor. And when jealousy is godly, it's good. I'm indebted to a former professor of mine who, in my undergrad years, taught on some of these nuances, on this very topic. He wrote a book, in fact, called Godly Jealousy. His name was Dr. Eric Tonis. And for all of our students and kids out there, I, I love his story and how God will lead you through the twists and turns of life. Because Eric Tonis was a star football player. He was a wide receiver. He was slated for a top-tier college scholarship. And in his senior year of varsity football, he's going out to catch a pass in a game. His feet are going one way. He turns his body to catch a ball that's thrown behind him. But his feet are planted, and so it's his knee that does a 180. His season is over, his career is over, but God had other plans. And sometimes our plan B or C actually turns out to be God's plan A. So he did not have this illustrious sports career that he dreamed of and, and actually would have had, but he went into biblical studies he turned his sights on academics. He became a professor and a pastor. And of all the things that he could study, he had two major emphases. One was the jealousy of God. The other was he wrote on a theology of sports and competition. And it's just brilliant work. And you can find some of the articles that are out there. And I would add this, too, just to his credit. He was extremely patient with me as a freshman who would sometimes fall asleep in the back row of his lecture hall. But it was Dr. Tonis who taught me these biblical distinctions and things I've learned about since. So let's put them side by side and let's spell it out this way. Human jealousy is petty, insecure, and selfish. God's jealousy is fitting, true, and actually loving. 
And the difference between these two is what? The difference is that God is God and we are not. That's the difference. So when human beings seek their own honor or command the love of another, it's ugly. But when God seeks his own honor and he commands his people to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all our strength and all our mind, it is good and proper. Because it is God alone who is worthy of all of these things. He is worthy of all of our praise and adoration and worship. Now remind us of a passage we brought up last week. We talked about the holiness of God. We looked at Exodus 15. Who is like you, Lord? Rhetorical question. Nobody. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And I think sometimes we can begin to approach God and expect him to almost be human in the face of praise. Like God should be self-effacing, like a humble sports star or some kind of celebrity. And so when the praise gets heaped on, whether it's LeBron or Steph Curry or, or whoever it might be, you know, it's like we would expect them to say, oh, no, 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 guys, that's enough. I got to credit my team. I got to give it to the offensive line. I mean, you know how those speeches will go. And I think we can project this human idea onto God. But here's where it's just totally different. God is God. And he's at the top. There is no one like God. There's nobody else to give credit to. All the glory belongs to him. And so he's not being selfish or prideful in seeking his own honor. He's being true to his very nature as God. And not just true, but as I said, ultimately loving. Because for you and I, it is the very best thing in the world for us to live in God-glorifying relationship with him. It just corresponds with who God is. And I want you to think about this theme scripturally. And so we have verses, especially the Gospel of John, that would remind us that before we ever even get to creation in the story in, in Genesis... Before we're even there, we have the triune God glorifying himself in the relationship of the Trinity. And so God the Father is glorifying the Son, and the Son's glorifying the Father, and the Holy Spirit is glorifying the Son. And then God creates the universe, and we get to Genesis. And that James Webb telescope that's now out there and uncovering even more amazing things about our universe, God creates it, and why does he create it? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what they exist to do. A little further along in the timeline, God creates mankind in Genesis. He creates man in his own image. And why does he do it? Isaiah 43, my sons and my daughters, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then a little bit further on in the story, God the Father sends his son. It's Christmas. And he sends his son in the flesh as a baby. The promised Messiah is born. And what do the angels sing to the shepherds at his birth announcement? This refrain all the way from the beginning. Glory to God in the highest. 
Now, we might ask, why all this emphasis on God's glory? I thought this message was going to be about God's jealousy. And the reason is this. Because we will never understand the jealousy of God if we do not understand the glory of God. God is not being some narcissist in the sky. He's being God. And if we don't have room for God to be about his own glory, then our God is too small. He's like some Hercules, some demigod. It is fitting, true, and ultimately loving toward us that God would correspond to his character and be jealous for his name. And with that, let's go to Exodus 34, that first reading that Santi gave to us. Exodus 34, do you remember what happened with the first Ten Commandments that Moses had? They got smashed. He came down in Exodus 32 from Mount Sinai, and he finds the people of Israel are doing what? They're worshiping this golden calf. And Moses, in anger, he gets to the base of Mount Sinai, and he throws down those stone tablets, and they're smashed to smithereens. That was Exodus 32. Now we're two chapters later, and we get in our house what we call a redo, which really is just a description of God's grace. So Moses gets two new stone tablets, inscribed again by the hand of God with those same Ten Commandments, and the covenant relationship between God and his people is being reaffirmed. And so Exodus 34.10 says, Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, Yahweh, will do for you. And what is that work, we could ask as we look at the verse? Well, the work God will do is to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land and to establish the nation of Israel. Now, we might read that in our setting here and we'll say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Why would God do that? And that's a very good question. And without going too far into this question around the conquests of the Old Testament, just to this passage, and Santi read all those names, these people groups so well, just to this passage, I would remind us of this. We probably have to familiarize ourselves with the Canaanite fertility religions. And this was not just like our little caricature of idol worship, where these ancient people would then go to a statue and they would bow down and worship it, and they'd go about their ordinary business. But no, these fertility religions encompassed their entire lifestyle and swallowed up the ebb and flow of culture. So that what was going on in Canaan, and this is verified in extra-biblical resources by archaeology, etc., what was going on in Canaan? I could not possibly describe to you now in the presence of younger listeners. And we'll just leave it at that. It could not even be depicted in a rated R movie. And so what God is doing, much like the flood, is he is going in and cleaning house. Because remember his attributes we've studied. He is holy. He is good. He is just. He cannot tolerate evil. And so he takes this piddly people that will be called Israel 
due to no merit of their own, this is called grace, he takes Israel and he is going to clean out Canaan and plant this people into the promised land. That is the work and the wonder that he's describing in this passage. And then we get to verse 14 and we run into our key theme for today. It says, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And there's your attribute. Now, this isn't the first time this has come up. We could have read earlier passages, and it will not be the last. But here's the interesting connection. Wherever you find this attribute, this name in the Old Testament, it seems to be connected to idol worship. Remember, Katie talked about God protecting his relationships. And it's always connected to this commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 4, a little bit later than Exodus 34, just to name another example. Deuteronomy 4, do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And reading that this week, we don't have to do a show of hands, but we get... I did one at our house. Did you get to do a, a bonfire, a campfire? And we were reminded, remember that assignment about God's holiness and the live coals burning at the bottom from Isaiah 6? Our God is a consuming fire, the Bible says. That's jealousy, isn't it? What a picture. Have you ever made a fire too big and all of a sudden you're having to scoot back your lawn chair so you don't singe off your leg hair? Our God is a consuming fire. The Hebrew word for jealousy is the word kanah. Kanah. In fact, El Kanah is one of the Hebrew names for God. Do you know some of those names we run into in the Old Testament? El Shaddai. Speaking of the 80s, the Amy Grant song. El Shaddai, Almighty God. Or how about Jehovah Jireh? The Lord will provide, or we have Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. And so you can add to that list Elkanah, the God whose name is Jealous. And this name, this attribute, is described all over the Old Testament. And when it's related to God, let me just remind us, it is always good. It is always good. Phineas, just to give some examples, is commended in Numbers 25 as Jealous for the Lord's honor. Elijah, another example, he says, I alone have been jealous for the Lord God Almighty. What does God do? God corrects him and says, no, 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 Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. But probably my favorite example in the Old Testament is a story that never has the word kana show up, literally, but it's all over the place. And that's the story of David and Goliath. See, this story is not about God liking the little guy, but it is about the little guy being jealous for God. 1 Samuel 17, 45, out of that story, David says what to the giant? What does he say to Goliath? Remember, Goliath's like, you come at me with a stick like I'm a dog. And David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David is, how old is he in this story? 16? He's ticked off. 
Because the name of the Lord has been defied. And so my prayer for us in studying this attribute, and maybe you're thinking about it for the first time this morning, is that we would move from tolerating it to loving it like David. You know, of all the attributes, I think this might be the one in our list that would cause us to say, well, God, I guess we'll accept it if you say you're a jealous God. You know, you're God, so we'll let that pass. But then we look at David, and we see this righteous, beautiful, giant-slaying kind of jealousy that wells up in him, and it is good. Which brings us then to the example of Jesus we see in our second passage in John chapter 2. Now in the New Testament, we shift from Hebrew to Greek. And the Greek equivalent to kana is the word zelos. Zeal, jealousy. And this is the word that shows up in John chapter 2. This passage, the clearing of the temple courts, is I believe, I couldn't go back to verify it, but I seem to remember this is the only passage in all of Scripture in all of the Gospels where Jesus has a weapon in hand. In verse 15, he makes a whip out of cords and he drives out the people who are selling and buying sheep and cattle and doves and he drives out the money changers and he flips over their tables. It is a righteous anger, a righteous, jealous anger that is then articulated in verses 16 and 17. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And then we have this Old Testament quote. His disciples remembered that is written. Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. In the Bible, God is jealous for two things. For his own glory and for his people. And both of those things, when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem that day, they were being impeded. The temple was to be a place of reverence and prayer where God's glory would dwell. And it was to be a place for his people to come and worship. And these two things have not changed. But God is still jealous for his glory and for his people. And so my question as we come into application is, where does that lead us? You know, because studying these things is never meant to be some dry theological doctrine. But it's intensely practical. And so where does it lead us? The first thing I would ask you is this. Have I settled in my heart that God is jealous for his own honor and that it's a good thing he is? So have I understood, in other words, that God's jealousy is not petty, insecure, or selfish, but that it's the very best thing that God would seek his own honor? You know, pride is a human problem, and pride is a problem because it's a theological problem. Because we're not in that place. We don't deserve the honor that belongs to God alone. Have we settled that here in our hearts? Do we cherish this about God and not just tolerate it, but do we love it that He is Elkanah, a jealous God? And secondly, we might ask this question, 
How does God's jealousy change the way that I think about his love and how he sees me? Because there's something appropriate about jealousy in a meaningful relationship. Paul says to the Corinthians, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, he says. It's good. And so we might ask ourselves here, do we love one another within our church family with a godly jealousy? And in marriage, another relationship, we know that there should be a healthy jealousy, a godly jealousy between a husband and wife that is not born out of insecurity, it's not petty. It's not out of a desire to control or be over-possessive, but it is the jealousy of covenant love. I am my beloved's, and she is mine. Right? So translate that. Don't mess with my wife. I don't know what I'm going to do, but... We know that. That's, that's part of it. And then there's the metaphor we started with. The love for a little one whom God has entrusted to you. And just to clarify for our parents who are older in years, you know, your little one might be in their 40s or 50s or 60s, and they are still your little one. Is that true? To close, let me share this story. I had a memorable wildlife encounter this week. I was driving out by my parents' place and came around the bend of this country road, And there in the middle of the road is a bear. And he was walking across the road. And then when my truck came up and into view, he kind of galloped the rest of the way down into the ditch and into the edge of the woods or woods on both sides of the road. And then he just turned around and watched me as I drove by and snapped a couple pictures. Now, he wasn't real big, this guy. He was a juvenile black bear. But he did remind me. Here, I've been thinking about God's jealousy. And he reminded me of a picture of another kind of bear that I would certainly not want to cross paths with. A mama bear. So let me ask you again. How does the jealousy of God change the way that you think about his love and how he sees you? Do you know that God loves you with a fierce kind of love? Do you know he loves you in a way that guards you and protects you? That God would give his life to defend you and to rescue you? In fact, we know he already has. It is only a jealous kind of love that would cause God to send his son to die for you, to be born in the flesh, to go to the cross, all to forgive and redeem you. And that's not petty. It's profound. As the hymn writer says, that kind of love demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that this attribute may, it may stretch us. We may be challenged by it, Lord, but we pray that there would be something about your word this morning that would ring so true 
it would just shift entire categories in our mind. And we would love and treasure and cherish your jealousy for your own honor and for us, your people. Lord, we are here to worship you and praise you till our dying breath and then for all eternity. I pray, Lord, that you would well this up in our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.